Part 4, Wichita, Kansas When I arrived in Wichita with all of my possessions crammed into my tiny car, Anthony called his brother asking him to give me the key to the house. His brother refused. I slept in my car for about a week while I looked for a job. I ate at the local homeless shelter kitchen because I was running out of money. I continued to be the only person to attend Anthony's family support sessions at the rehab in preparation for his release within the next 30 days. Finally, his therapist at the rehab reached out to a colleague and got me a place placement into a homeless shelter. He was also now approved for weekend passes to attend church, so we started attending the church of one of his family's longtime friends together every weekend. They had also started paying him a small stipend to play piano during church services. At our last family therapy session, before he was set to be released, Anthony brought up to his therapist that he was still hurt by, my, by me cheating on him. After that meeting, the therapist said he no longer felt we were ready to live together again, as he noted Anthony's demeanor seemed to have dramatically changed since I had arrived in Wichita. Then Anthony made a comment in front of his therapist that I had followed him to Wichita. I was shocked, to say the least. As I left, I was once again hurt, confused, and unsure of our future. I felt stupid for even agreeing to move to Wichita. Now I had no job, and I was homeless. Sunday, Anthony called for the first time since our meeting a few days prior and asked if I was picking, up for, picking him up for church, so I did. He acted in front of his longtime friends at church as though nothing were wrong. They invited us out to eat afterward. Anthony had been kind to me all day. After we ate, he still had a few hours left of his weekend pass, so we stopped at a park to talk. He immediately started questioning me about whom I had dated while he and I had been separated. It never even crossed my mind to ask him the same. I didn't care. We were not together. I explained to him that it hadn't even really been a matter of me dating because all I had really done was had sex. Then he asked me to make a list of him, for him of every person I had ever had sex with in my entire life. I told him that if that's what he really wanted, I would put it down on paper, even though I was always honest with him and he was already aware of my partners before I met him as well as while we were separated. He said he wanted it written down on a piece of paper right that very moment. So I started writing. When I got to the person I had had sex with the day before I got arrested, he became irate, even though he had already been well aware prior. We had discussed it multiple times, even in his counseling sessions. He told me to take him back to the rehab immediately, and he said he never wanted to see me again. A few hours later, he called me to apologize and asked if I would give him a ride to his Narcotics Anonymous meeting that evening. I picked him up and he asked me to attend the meeting with him. He told me that he felt like I should start working the program with him as he claimed I had a sex addiction. After the meeting, we got a few blocks away from the rehab 
and he told me to stop at the gas station around the corner so he could get a fountain drink. When we came out of the store, he apologized again and asked me to take a walk with him since it was a nice, warm summer evening. We walked a few blocks, leaving my car parked at the gas station. We stopped to sit on a bench when he started again to explain to me how upset he was that I had cheated on him. I was so frustrated by the day's events that I blurted out, How are you still considering that cheating after everything we have been through? You asked me for a divorce and you moved out of the house. I thought we were done for good. I can't keep doing this. I don't think this is going to work out if this is still how you feel despite everything we have been through. He yelled back, I never wanted you back. Why are you even here? As he proceeded to throw his 32-ounce cold, sticky drink on me, he grabbed the car keys out of my hand, ran across the street to the liquor store, and called the police on me again. I'm not sure exactly what he told them, but the staff at the liquor store told the police they saw me run across the street after him trying to get my car keys back so I was the one arrested since nobody had witnessed any of the altercation prior. When I was released from jail the next day, they tried to kick me out of the homeless shelter since I didn't make it back before curfew because I was in jail overnight. They had already packed up my belongings. I appealed the decision and they allowed me to stay on a probationary status. Shortly after, I woke up one morning with what appeared to be a nasty bug bite on my inner thigh. When I went to the homeless drop-in clinic, the nurse told me that it was just a mosquito bite. I insisted it felt different and was not like any other mosquito bite I had ever had. She ignored my concerns, cleaned it, put antibiotic ointment on it, and a bandage over it. The next day, it was swollen and larger. Once again, the nurse told me to just keep an eye on it and come back if it got worse. By this time, I also had a fever. On the third day, I woke up with a temperature of 105 degrees, drenched in sweat, and the bite on my inner thigh had swollen down to my knee, larger than a softball, hot to the touch, and was black at the core. I also noted a similar pain on the cheek of my buttocks. This time, when I went to the homeless clinic, the nurse was visibly frightened as she tried to appear calm. She instructed me to go to the emergency room immediately. I drove myself, even though sitting was almost unbearable by now. The bite on my buttock was swelling exponentially by the moment. They had me take one lure tab, as well as some Tylenol, deciding the best course of action was to excise both areas with a scalpel and irrigate as much pus as possible. They did not admit me due to the fact that they claimed they didn't know if it was MRSA or a bite stating that homelessness was more than likely the contributing factor. The physician's assistant performing the procedure in the ER asked how I had become homeless. I explained to him that just six weeks prior I was a college student and now I was here. They released me from the ER with instructions for both MRSA and brown recluse bite as well as a 90-day prescription for antibiotics. They claimed they didn't know whether it was a brown recluse bite or a methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus infection, or both. When I got back to the shelter, it was past curfew, so they called 
um, the ER to confirm why I was late, even though I had paperwork. I went to my room and gathered up my bed sheets to wash them since my fever had broke overnight the night before. When I went to move the sheets from the washer to the dryer, I found the brown recluse spider in my bed sheets, dead from the wash cycle. I'm not sure exactly what happened to Anthony at that point, but he was either released from rehab or he never went back. I still don't know. Shortly after, his family called me saying he showed up at their house looking very rough. He had clearly relapsed. He was dirty, had no shoes on, and had severe burns with blisters covering both of his hands and lips. They asked if I could come pick him up because they did not feel safe with him staying at their house with their young children because his mental state was unstable. I was concerned for his safety, so I picked him up. They had allowed him to shower and gave him some clean clothes and shoes. They gave me first aid supplies to bandage up his hands. The burns were very bad. I would assume third degree. I had no idea what they were from. He explained to me that it was from smoking crack from a glass crack pipe, that he was so high he did not feel the pain to drop the pipe when it got hot enough to burn him, and he just kept on smoking. The homeless shelter I'd been staying in did not have a room available for married couples, and the room I was in had another woman as my roommate. We applied to stay in a homeless shelter that allowed married couples to stay together in a room. We were accepted that night on an emergency basis. Anthony got a job as a cook, and I got a job in a factory. One night, Anthony did not get off work until 1 a.m. The shelter allowed me to pick him up from work, but when we got back, they said they were kicking him out for not notifying the shelter beforehand why he was going to be late in this curfew. We slept on his sister's couch for a while. His sister's caregiver was someone my husband had known since he was in high school. She made it very clear that she did not like me. Once, she invited my husband to a revival at her church. When she showed up to give him a ride to the revival, she was irate that I was with him. At first, she apparently whispered to my husband that she did not want me in her car, according to him. We both ended up going. When it came time to apply the anointing oil to our foreheads during the service, she insisted she be the one to anoint my forehead. It felt as though she had put some sort of hot chili in the oil. I told my husband that I did not feel comfortable there, but he insisted we stay until the end of the service. Once we got back to his sister's, the woman parked her vehicle and turned to my husband, looking at me, and said, She felt like I was possessed by a demon, and she feared for his immortal soul. As she recited the following quote from the Bible, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? As she looked at me directly, I had never memorized much scripture before I met my husband except everyone's favorite verse about love in Corinthians, but I was sure I had heard this particular quote before, so I searched and searched my Bible until I found it. It was Acts 19, 13-16. The exact quote is, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I showed my husband this scripture, and I said, Don't you think it was odd that she quoted the words of the demon? The next day, when my husband and I got back to his sister's for the night, after interviewing for jobs all day, his sister's caregiver had the couch we had been sleeping on turned upside down with a note pinned to it saying we could no longer stay there. When we tried to go to church that Sunday, my car wouldn't start, so the pastor picked us up for church and after church made arrangements for my car to be picked up by their mechanic to see if it could be repaired. When the mechanic arrived to tow my car, it was gone. The police said they had not impounded it, so I had to report it stolen. Once several months later, my husband alluded to the fact that he thought maybe his sister's caregiver had something to do with my car breaking down and guessed that she probably called a salvage yard to tow it and crush it as junk, as this usually paid around $150. Every possession I owned was in that car, including my children's baby books. We were accepted into a co-ed live-in work rehabilitation program. I had to stay in the women's dorms, and he had to stay in the men's. My follow-up court date for my arrest had been scheduled for July 31st. I got permission to, work, to miss work to attend court and showed up early. When I arrived, my name was not on the docket, so I asked the clerk. They explained to me that my court date had been changed to the day prior, and I missed it. They hadn't sent me a notification because they had me listed in the system as homeless. They asked me to come to the walk-in docket the next day to resolve the situation. As soon as I stepped in front of the judge that morning, when my name was called, the judge immediately asked the bailiff to arrest me because I had a warrant for my arrest for missing court. Once again, I was naive about the way the system works, and I was caught off guard. They said since I was technically considered homeless, I was a flight risk, and they remanded me to stay in jail for 30 days until my next court appearance. While I was in jail that 30 days, Anthony never once attempted to contact me in any way. The pastor from the church came to see me once, and she said she didn't know where Anthony was, even though he had come to church. During that 30 days in jail, I started having horrific pain in my abdomen. When I complained to the jail clinic, the only thing the doctor did was test me for STDs, which all came back negative. When my court date arrived, Anthony and a woman from the church were there at my hearing. The county attorney explained to me that Anthony had requested that I be court-ordered to a mental health institution. The judge ordered a psychiatric evaluation. I passed the psychiatric evaluation and was released from jail with no further orders except that I was placed back on probation once again. As soon as I got out of jail, I went immediately to the free clinic for my abdominal pain. The doctor explained to me that they thought it was a result of my brown recluse bite and according to the lab results, my kidneys were almost at a point of complete failure. They immediately put me on another 90-day round of antibiotics. I had not had access to my first course of antibiotics during my 30 days in jail. When I went to the program Anthony and I had been living in, they told me that they would accept me back into the program if I wanted, but they would not accept Anthony because he had left the night before I got arrested and never came back. 
When I asked him where he had been this whole time, he said he had been staying with a woman from the church. He also claimed that that same woman was friends with and on the board of the Boys and Girls Club with the judge that sentenced me. Since then, he has claimed that he lied about that, so I'm still not sure to this day what exactly happened. Once again, with nowhere else to go, we were sleeping on Anthony's sister's couch. At this point, Anthony and I were really not together, so to speak. He was very short-tempered toward me and mentioned several times that he didn't think it was fair that he had to take care of me. After I explained to him the only reason I came to Wichita was because he asked me to and I had no family or friends and nowhere to go now that I was homeless and unemployed once again. We continued to attend the same church and the husband and wife pastor started to give us marital counseling every Sunday after church. Eventually, through counseling, Anthony agreed with the pastor's suggestion that we should renew our vows considering he had continued to bring up the past. Everyone involved felt like it would allow us to start our marriage anew. When my oldest daughter realized what was going on, I'm not sure exactly how. She found out. I don't recall. I'm thinking Anthony must have called her and talked to her, but I'm not sure. She suggested that I come and stay with her for about a week. I think this was around September. I went to stay with my daughter in Manhattan, Kansas. By the end of that week, my husband called me excitedly, saying that he had a place for us to live when I got home. He explained to me on the telephone that that very day he had been on a long walk, depressed and dejected, feeling like he couldn't take care of me as a husband. He explained to me that he had been walking past a church that he was not familiar with when a pastor that he did not know came out and started talking to him, inviting him inside. By the time they were finished with their conversation, the pastor had offered him a free place for us to live until we could get back on our feet. The day I got home, I also got a phone call as we were moving into our new apartment, offering me a job at the local family dollar that I had gone to an interview for before going to my daughter's house for the week. Anthony also got a job at a local restaurant in Old Town as a prep cook and a dishwasher. Our church was also still paying Anthony to play the piano every Sunday. That day we were both excited. Everything seemed to be looking up, and we had just renewed our wedding vows. The pastor came to our new apartment and blessed our home. The initial excitement didn't last long. As soon as Anthony got his first paycheck, he was using again. There were several incidents in our new home where Anthony was communicating with and getting rides from other women. I'm not sure exactly the details of what all transpired in this situation. One woman was the same woman from the church that he claimed to have stayed with while I was in jail. She had been communicating with him quite frequently under the guise of helping him get a job. Another woman lived down the street from us and gave him rides quite frequently. She called and texted him all hours of the night and day. One day, our next-door neighbor, who I barely knew, was knocking on our door hysterical, screaming and crying for Anthony. I was home alone, so I did not answer. Another neighbor called the police on her because she was being so destructive trying to break down the door. When the police arrived, she was bleeding, and she started screaming to the police that she was HIV positive and that she was going to put blood on them if, she, if they tried to arrest her. 
The woman who owned the apartment building we were living in was the sister of the pastor that let us move in there. She had also started coming around quite frequently when she was in town since she lived in another state. She visited with my husband when I was not home, taking him out to lunch on a fairly regular basis. Anthony had always claimed that I got paid more than he did, and his checks were never big enough to pay the rent. So I would go down and buy a money order for the rent. He would take it, insisting that he was going to meet up with the pastor for counsel and then pay the rent. They would go in the empty apartment next door to us that his sister kept for herself when she was in town. They would talk for about an hour every month, then they would leave together to go cash the money order. I was under the impression that our rent was being paid. However, by the time we ended up moving out of this apartment, the pastor told me that every time they left to cash the money order, he would give the money back to Anthony because Anthony would tell him that we could not afford it. So not only was Anthony spending his entire paycheck on drugs, he was also convincing the pastor to give him the money back that I had been paying on rent and spending that on drugs as well. I was not aware of this the entire time we lived there until we ended up moving out when the pastor told me I owed eight months of rent. Just before we had moved, the minister of music from the church where Anthony was playing the piano texted our phone. At this point, we had only one cell phone, but apparently the minister of music was not aware of this. The text said, I will buy you some crack if you come hang out with me at the motel. This, of course, caused a huge fight between us. That man actually had the audacity to show up at our home. I screamed at him to leave as Anthony had already left due to our fight. A few hours later, a car full of men showed up at our place, insisting that my husband owed them money. When I told them I didn't have any money, they accused me of playing games and threatened to shoot me. They claimed my husband had told them to come pick up the money he owed them from me. I told them I had no idea what was going on, but I had no money, and they were going to have to get that money from Anthony. I had utilized the time while we had lived there to try to fix up his mother's house to the point where we could move in. While it was vacant, a next-door neighbor had stolen electricity for quite some time. When the utility company found out, they removed the meter from the home. So I had to pay around $1,000 total between inspections and electricians to get the house up to code in order to pass inspection so we could get the meter reinstalled. The hot water heater had also been stolen, so I purchased a new one from Home Depot and hired someone to install that as well in order to pass inspection. When it finally passed inspection and we got the electricity back on, we moved into the vacant house, which his brother had been slowly but surely attempting to repair inside. All of the carpet had been torn out, so the floors were bare cement and subflooring. We soon realized there was a mold issue as well and had to tear out all of the kitchen cabinets. I ended up living there with my husband for almost a year when his addiction got to the point where it was impossible to stay any longer, especially with the home in such a state of disrepair, while he changed jobs so frequently and continued to play the piano at various churches. At this point, he was sleeping in one room and I was sleeping in another. He would often complain about our marriage to the pastor of whichever church he was currently playing piano for, continuing to accuse me of what he called my infidelity as his reasoning for his multiple continuous relapses.
even though we had renewed our vows and I had been faithful. Once he even accused me of having an affair with the pastor, which was absolutely untrue. He told several other people at the church of his suspicions and started such rumors that the pastor came to our home to confront him concerning his allegations. As he and the pastor stood face to face on the front lawn of our home, the neighbors thought they were physically fighting and called the police. The events I am about to relay next all happened in a matter of less than a month or so. One night I woke up to my car and my debit card missing. When I went to my bank, they told me a woman was seen on various different ATMs, video cameras, and draining my account. A total of over $2,000. The bank contacted the police. When the police arrived and investigated, they explained to me that there was nothing they could do legally in the state of Kansas because he was my husband, and he had presumably given this woman my ATM card and PIN number. According to the police, she was a local known prostitute that my husband had frequently been seen with. He had reached a point where he would call me at work and tell me he was getting high and ask me to get a motel for the night rather than come home so I wouldn't see him like that. One weekend, he showed up at my job insisting he needed the car for something important and that he would be back to pick me up within a few hours when I got off work. He insisted and would not leave. So exasperated, I reluctantly gave him the keys to my car so he would just leave because he was making a scene at my job. He never came back that night. The buses had already stopped running, and I couldn't find anyone else available to pick me up, so I had to walk the six miles home. Late the next afternoon, he was still not home with my car, so I could go to work. So I hopped on the bus. When I got off the bus at the bus depot downtown, he was boarding the bus. I started screaming, where the fuck is my car? The bus driver called the police. The police officer detained me and told my husband to leave. The police officer explained to me that I couldn't report my car stolen. Apparently, he had traded the use of my car to his dealer in exchange for drugs. Because he was my husband, it was not considered theft in the state of Kansas, even though his name was not on the title of my car. The officer insisted that if I did not calm down and leave the bus station, I would be arrested. I walked down the street away from the bus station, and my husband was waiting around the corner for me. I became irate once more, screaming, where the fuck is my car? The cop came to our location once more when my husband said, I can go get the car right now, I just need a ride. The cop gave my husband a ride and left me there. My husband never returned. I finally hopped on the last bus home before the buses stopped running. When I got home, my car was in the driveway, and my husband was asleep. He had been working at a more lucrative job now than usual for about two weeks. When he got his first $1,400 paycheck, he asked me to take him to cash it after midnight Friday morning because he couldn't wait any longer to get high. He gave me $450 for the car payment and left when a woman he worked with came to pick him up. He came home around five hours later asking me for the money he had given me for the car payment. I tried to explain to him that I had already mailed the car payment, but he wouldn't listen, insisting there were people waiting outside for him that he owed money to. He had come into the house clearly inebriated with lipstick all over his shirt. I was starting a better job the next morning and did not know how to deal with this situation. 
he started dialing 911 on his cell phone, which he often did while he was high. I tried to take his phone from him so the police would not come to our home once again, which had become a very common occurrence as of late. There had been so many police brutality deaths in the news, I was afraid he was going to be killed by the police if they showed up while he was high and acting crazy. As I lunged to grab the phone, the 911 operator had already answered, unbeknownst to me. As he lunged to retrieve the phone from my hand, the broken crack pipe he held in his hand cut my cheek. I yelled, did you seriously just cut my motherfucking face? Of course, the 911 dispatcher heard me say this, and the police were there within 15 minutes. One officer took me to the living room while another officer spoke to my husband. I could see him down the hallway in our bedroom. My husband had been sitting in a chair with only his underwear on, as it was his habit to remove his clothes when he was high. When my husband got upset trying to find out if I was okay with my cheek bleeding, the rookie officer became alarmed as my husband stood up and he saw my husband's large stature. I saw the startled cop put his hand on his gun. This scared me to death. The officer I was with stopped me from going back down the hall to the bedroom. I explained to the officer that since crack pipes were very thin glass, it was just a superficial cut and only looked worse than it really was due to the bleeding. I assured him that I was fine and did not need an ambulance. When my husband heard they were arresting him for the scratch to my face, he said he was having chest pain and they called him an ambulance. After being released from the hospital, he was booked into jail and released within 24 hours with a court date. Of course, my husband blamed this one on me as well. About a week later, like clockwork, payday, my husband called me at work and told me not to come home. He asked me to get a motel room for the night so he could get high in peace. At this point, it had become the norm, so I did as he asked. I came home the next afternoon to get a different pair of shoes for work because the ones I had been wearing were hurting my feet. When I arrived, my husband was still very high and angry that I had showed up. As soon as I got inside the front door, he picked me up from behind with a giant bear hug, turned me around, and sat me down outside on the front porch. All in the same motion, he grabbed my keys out of my hand, shut the door, and locked me out of the house. Now I could not even get to work because he had the keys to my car. I went and sat on the trunk of my car, and within minutes the police arrived. My husband had called them, falsely claiming once again that I had attacked him. When the police looked under my fingernails and noted that I didn't have any skin under my fingernails, they knew that I had not caused the scratch across his chest that he claimed came from me. As they went back to talk to my husband and tell him that I was willing to leave if I could just get the keys to my car so I could go to work, my husband yelled, No, absolutely not. I want her arrested now. When the police said, It's your word against hers, you have no witnesses. We would have to arrest you both. He put his hands out in front of him and said, Okay, then, arrest us both. I never went home again after I got out of jail that day, not even to get my belongings. In the beginning of our relationship, he had tried to turn his ex, the mother of his daughter, against and I against each other, even though he still had a very strong bond with her. He would ask me to listen to their conversations. When he called her, he would put her on speakerphone. His plan backfired because the more I heard this woman speak on the other end of the telephone, I was in awe of her without even seeing her face. I felt the strength, beauty, and wisdom resonate from her words. 
When he realized that I saw these positives about her, he told me that she was a witch. In his ultra-Christian upbringing, this was the ultimate sin, and the fact that I was not upset or phased by his claim was just as sinful in his eyes, if not more so. There were many similar set-up attempts where he tried to pit me against strong, dominant women from his past, especially women in the church. It really upset him when one female pastor, in particular, after hearing his complaints of me claiming that I had caused him to use drugs, that I stressed him out so much that he had no other choice, just as he had told me in the beginning that his ex had been the cause of his drug use. It had come full circle. I was now being discarded because I was no longer enabling his addiction. When this same prominent female pastor from his past said, she reminds me of myself when I was her age, he never allowed me to speak to her again. Unless he was present. After she made that statement, he literally told me right then and there, in front of her and her husband, that I was never to speak to her unless he was present, not even on the telephone. One incident in particular while we had been arguing, I'm not sure exactly what we were arguing about or when this occurred. He shook me as he held my arms, leaning over me on the bed. He yelled, you will never be a black woman. I said, what are you talking about? He cried out, I want my mama. I responded, why did you even marry me? Dejectedly, he said, I don't know anymore. I thought you could heal me. I was wrong. It broke my heart when he said that because I knew it was true. Even if I could afford him all the support and comfort his heart desired, his healing ultimately was his responsibility. He seeks comfort in his addiction. With that, I cannot compete. Anthony and Roberto had different victim blaming and manipulation techniques. Anthony called himself the puppet master of self-fulfilling prophecies, including but not limited to the fact that he literally asked one of his male relatives to rape me after we broke up to get back at me for breaking his heart. Several years later, this rape actually occurred. He willfully admitted that he caused events to unfold solely for his own pleasure and then quietly dispersed the secrets that he had asked me not to share with anyone, all while twisting the new narrative to fit him being the victim. 